The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. All right, well, good evening, church. Good evening. Well, if you have your Bible, let's turn to the book of Acts. I'm going to jump a few chapters ahead from our current study with Pastor Ray, but Acts chapter 12. Um, I'm not sure if Ray mentioned to you last week or not, but he is going to be gone this weekend and next. He and uh, uh, my wife Annie are ministering in Texas today. They are at an all-day event called... um, Revival for Survival. It's at a, a, a stadium in Houston, Sugarland, Texas there, uh, praying and interceding for God to move on behalf of our nation. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Acts chapter 12, pick up with me in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 17. A very famous, powerful, and even a little bit of humor in the story for us tonight. And for those of you who don't know or are visiting, my name is uh, Sean. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm privileged to bring the word to you. Verse 1, about that time, Herod, the king, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, or Passover season. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold... An angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Verse 10, when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people, all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, ah, it's his angel. Verse 16, but Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Title of the message is Prayer in a Time of Crisis. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this night, and I pray, Holy Spirit, you would stir us, you would challenge us, you would encourage us, you would would move us to be a people who pray who don't just simply say, yeah, prayer is important, who simply offer prayers occasionally from time to time. But Lord, I believe you're calling us to pray in a time of crisis, a time to intercede like the early church, to see and ask and implore heaven to move. 
And so I pray you'd give us ears to hear and hearts that are willing to receive and ultimately wills that are humble enough to say yes, yes to what it is you're calling us to do. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen, 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 amen. You know, there's books that many of us read that have a profound impact on our life. Obviously, the Bible has the most impact, but there's a lot of books as believers that we encounter. Books by C.S. Lewis or A.W. Tozer, Pursuit of God. Uh, There's a little book called uh, Practice of the Presence by Brother Lawrence on Intimate Prayer. But many years ago, I read a book that absolutely rocked my, my, my world. It was a book called Intercessor, and it was, a, it was about a man named Reese Howes. Reese Howes was a young man who was saved during the, the Welsh revival. He was Welsh himself. From a very early age, he was saved, and he felt committed and called to ministry, but particularly to the ministry of prayer, intercessory prayer. Now, I had heard about prayer, I'd known about prayer, but I had never really seen or heard or understood the kind of prayer that some of us are called to, people like Reese Howes and those around him were called to. And in this book, it recounts his call, his ministry, his story after story, testimony after testimony of how the hand of God intervened in human affairs, oftentimes at response to great, intense, and fervent prayer. His ministry lasted during World War I and in particular during World War II. And many of the testimonies were about he and a group of others that tirelessly and relentlessly pursued and, and passionately prayed. And I believe, and like the book lays out, really turned the tide of the war. They understood that what was happening in the natural would be absolutely affected by the spiritual, that they needed to pray. In fact, Reese House talked about, he said, Mussolini's a man, but there's something different about Hitler. There's a spirit on and in Hitler. And they knew that they saw it. There was, there was prayer, great concerted prayer. Many of you saw or heard about the movie Dunkirk came out about a year and a half ago. Remember, we could go to movies, that thing, you know, you could actually go to. <laughs> Dunkirk, a powerful movie, Christopher Nolan. And he tells the true story about the miracle of Dunkirk. And he tells it from the, the natural level. It tells it simply from the human perspective. And it's this kind of triumph of, you know, people coming together. But that's not the whole story. The whole story is this. And if you know a little bit of history is that basically England was about to be wiped out. Germans had them on the run. They were pinned there in northern France. And by all intensive purposes, they should have been decimated. And very quickly afterwards, England was about to be invaded. They knew it. They, they could not stop Hitler. They could not stop his army. They could not do anything to, to stop this oncoming tide. And, and they were fearful. And they, were, they knew there was nothing that they could really do. Full retreat mode. The country of England begins to pray. In fact, King George, King George, Queen Elizabeth's father, called for a day of prayer and fasting. It was during that time Reese Howes and many other began to pray and intercede. And let me share an excerpt from his diary, May 21st, Fear of Invasion. Yesterday was the darkest day in the history of this country, especially after the prime minister's speech, Churchill. Everyone in town is expecting the enemy to invade this country. Yet we have told the Lord our lives for victory. We ought to pray now for the Lord to stop them coming over to this country. We must pray for the Lord to keep the enemy in check. He is like a roaring lion. 7 p.m., the French premier says tonight, it is only a miracle that will save us. The test is whether the Bible is true. And he says, I am willing to risk my life to prove it. And I want to tell you tonight that it is quite true. See that your believing is right. And if it is, you don't need to have any fear. May 22nd, 9 a.m., he writes, the world is in panic today. And certainly we could be too, unless we were quite sure the Lord had spoken to us. 
The destiny of England will be at stake today and tomorrow in a battle such as we are in today. You cannot trust in a meeting or in feelings. We must go back to what God has told us. There is an enemy that we must keep in check until God does the big thing. And from that night and for several nights, they persisted in intense intercessory prayer. Other members of the staff took turns, but Mr. Howells continued to pray and intercede. He went away and alone with God to battle through, and that's what he called it, battling through. And as others have testified, the crushing burden of those days broke his body. He literally, it says, laid down his life. He was physically from that moment a different person. They called it the miracle of Dunkirk, and the movie talks about it, but there was an absolute miracle. They should have been wiped out. To this day, historians have no idea why Hitler decided to call off the attack. His generals were pleading with him. We've got them on the rope. Send the tanks in. They knew the generals like, this is it. We can squash them right here and there. And for some reason, Hitler was confused. For some reason, he didn't give the order. He would not give the order. History tells us that a mysterious and strange fog rolled in. There was a calm in the English Channel. If you saw the book or, or read the book or know history or saw the movie, these fishing vessels from all over the south of England were able to make their way across the English Channel. And fishing boats were used to, to bring the troops, the battered troops from the French side back to England where they could regroup and regather. And ultimately we know the rest is history. And on and on, I could share more and more excerpts of them praying and, and as a result, things that were changed and stopped. You see, they understood there was crisis. It was a crisis. And all the strategies that men could employ, all of the great weaponry that England had at its disposal was nothing. They needed God to move. It was a crisis. And I say that to us tonight because I don't know what else it's going to take, but I think we realize we are in a crisis. We've been in it for several months and we continue to, to exist in this crisis. And I'm not just talking about the virus that has killed hundreds of thousands, but the results of that, the highest unemployment rates since the Great Depression. We live at a time of absolute political and, and, and division like I've never experienced in my life. I saw an article this week in USA Today. This was just USA Today, and it surveyed people, and 56% of people thought we're, we're on the verge of some kind of civil war. Again, I'm not quoting some prophecy site. This was USA Today. This was a headline I was reading. People, we feel this unrest. We don't know what's going to happen. There's a crisis economically. There's a crisis, you know, we know it with sickness. There's a crisis in relationship. There's a crisis with drugs and alcohol, abortion. On and on it goes. There's a crisis of a nation that is absolutely running as far, fast and far as they can away from God. What are we going to do? What do we do during this time? We need God to intervene. We need the intervention of God in all of heaven. And I believe tonight, this weekend, and as a church, God is calling us to do what we know we're supposed to do. I don't think I'm convincing you of something brand new. But my prayer tonight and my hope and my prayer this week is that I will be used by God to blow an ember, you know, blow the embers in our hearts to stoke a fire. Some of you, man, you're, you're already on fire. You're praying. This is like no big deal. You're like, yes. But for some of you, the ember's been a bit glowing. You're like one of those charcoals that's just about ready to go out. And I, I pray by the spirit of God that the spirit would blow and move and encourage to pray for, for our community, for our city, to pray for our families, to pray for your kids, to pray for those whom the enemy has kept in bondage. We are in a time of crisis, like the early church was a time of crisis, and we need, we need the, the hand of God to move in our day and age. Would somebody say amen to that? Amen. And so that's my prayer tonight as we look at this chapter, chapter 12 of the book of Acts. And we're going to look at the story and just drive, you know, pull out a few principles to pray, of prayer. 
And, and I don't know that it's gonna be anything new. Maybe some things will be new for some of us, but more than anything else, I pray that we would leave here tonight determined to pray, to get with our families, to get with our growth groups, to gather together on Tuesday morning, wherever it might be, and say, you know what? I'm gonna pray like I've never prayed before. We need divine intervention. Well, Acts, from the moment of Acts chapter two to Acts chapter 12, when the spirit of God descended upon those 120 huddled there in the upper room, the mission of Jesus has been exploding. People are being healed. People are being set free. Individuals, families, whole communities are being turned upside down or really right side up. The mission of Jesus is expanding and those who are bound in the kingdom of darkness have been brought into the kingdom of light. And if you've been with us through the book of Acts, and we're gonna see as we continue to make our way through, there's times of persecution that come. But here in chapter 12, it marks a time of great persecution. They had been beaten and threatened. They'd been in prison, but this is the first time that one of their leaders had actually been put to death. A few chapters previous to this, sure, Stephen, one of the deacons, is, is martyred, he's stoned. But this is one of the 12 this is one of the, the apostles, the apostle James, the brother of John. He was one of the favorites. He was one of the inner circle. In a time of great persecution, a time of crisis, he is rounded up by Herod, Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great, the nephew of, of Herod Antipas. We meet a few different Herods and try to keep them all straight, but this is Herod Agrippa. And he wasn't a really good ruler. He, he made a lot of mistakes. He was not liked by any of the, uh, the Jewish people in Israel. He was kind of forced upon them. But he does something here in chapter 12, and he kind of stumbles his way on to a little political favor. He earns himself a little political capital by thinking, how can I get some favor? And what does he do? He's thinking, these Jewish people really hate this, this new movement called the way. They really hate this movement of Christians, of Christ followers, of those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, he didn't really care, but he was trying to curry favor. So he imprisons James, and very quickly, we aren't told all the details, but he puts him to the sword, which is a way of saying he was beheaded. And he looks around and he realized, hey, this, this got me some political points. It says that he saw that, that it's pleased the Jews. And so what does he do? He turns around and he grabs Peter, the top dog, the, the biggest prize. I mean, Peter was the guy that everybody knew about. Everybody told stories about Peter. Peter had great power, authority, and influence. And so here's the crisis. The crisis isn't just one of leadership being attacked. Really, humanly speaking, it was, it was a crisis. Is this movement gonna be snuffed out? I mean, that's what was at stake. Humanly speaking, James has been killed. Peter's now in prison. What's going to happen next? Humanly speaking, they are at DEFCON 5. And what do they do? They pray. They do the only thing they can do. Do they, do they get a petition? Do they hire their best, best lawyer? No, they, they didn't have those means available to them. No, if they did, they should have used them. Paul used his citizenship at times. But they couldn't do that. They couldn't protest Rome. They couldn't protest Herod. All they could do is, in a sense, they could protest heaven through prayer. And that's what they do. They gather together, and it says they, they pray. They, they gather together, and they intercede. They gather together, and they cry out to God for God to do what only God can do. There was nothing that they could physically do. There was nobody to plead to, to say, hey, can you, can you put a good word in for Peter? All they could do was cry out to God and plead for God's mercy, for God's power, for God to show up. They were seeking a miracle. They needed a miracle. And God shows up powerfully. 
Now, I, I said the story, I love it because it's, it's incredible. I mean, just the sequence of events that we just kind of read through. You know, if Peter, you know, while they're praying, it says there in verse six, he's, he's fast asleep. In fact, he's, he's sleeping so soundly that when the angel actually comes, it says the angel strikes him. That word in the Greek is actually pretty, pretty strong. Like, he's got to punch him in the leg. I mean, Peter, you know, he's just like out cold. He's sleeping. He kind of shows that he's at peace with this whole thing. You know, he's trusting God through it all. But this angel has to come. It says a, a light shone in the cell, but that wasn't enough. The light coming didn't do anything. The, the, you know, the angel has to strike him. And even this whole time, it says Peter didn't realize that what was happening was actually happening. He just thought it was a vision. And a lot of what we read in this chapter to me is always mind blowing. It's like, man, they lived a different life than we live. You know, he's like, oh, I thought it was a vision. Like that was a common thing. Oh, we'll see it a bit later. Oh yeah, that's probably his angel. Like what, what does that mean? I don't, I don't live like that. I don't know like that. But when you read their stories, that's just how they live. That's how they thought. That's what they experienced. So the angel leads Peter out and Peter's just kind of following along. I, I do think it's funny that, you know, the angel has to say, Peter, wake up and, and put some clothes on, you know? And so just kind of imagining Peter kind of getting himself dressed and he makes his way out. And, and said, finally, verse 11 says he, he comes to himself. Finally, he realizes, hey, this isn't a dream. This is real. All of a sudden, he realizes he's no longer in prison. The chains that had shackled him are broken off. And he's there in the streets of Jerusalem. And he figures out right away, I've got to get myself out of here. This is not a safe place to be. And he goes to the house of, of Mary, uh, Mark's mother. Some think that this is where the, uh, this very same room where the upper room of Acts chapter two took place. And when he goes there, what does he find? He's knocking on the door because it's locked. And on the other door, maybe he's listening. He can tell they're praying. And, and, and they're praying so much, they can't really hear the knock. And finally, Rhoda hears and goes to the door. And, then, and I don't know if there was a little slat. I'm using my imagination. But she kind of opens the door. And on the outside, there's Peter knocking away. And she runs. And she's like leaving him there. Hey, guys, Peter's here. Peter's here. And they don't even believe her. You know, at that point, maybe they're still praying. They don't really know what's going to happen. Maybe they think he's already lost his life. And they say, yeah, it's just his angel. I don't know all that that means, but they're praying. They dismiss it until eventually the knocking doesn't go away. Oh, this isn't in our mind. Hey, somebody go answer the door. And then when the door finally opens, it seems to be that they erupt. Oh my goodness, Peter. And Peter's like, Shh. it says he has to raise his hand. Quiet, shut up, guys. You know, they're so excited that their prayers have been answered. Their, their leader has been delivered. They start shouting. It's the middle of the night. They're going to draw attention. And Peter's like, could you, could you keep, keep it down? And he goes on. And I love it how he testifies in verse 17. He testifies of how, says, the Lord delivered him. God delivered him. We see here as the people prayed, God moved. As the church came together to pray, the hand of God was released in, in a very powerful obvious and miraculous way. And the story is told for us, for us to see the importance and power of prayer. Amen. And so I want to just give us a few principles for prayer to ask God and to see God intervene. Prayers for God's intervention. And, and, and they're simple things, things like, like I said, we, we've probably heard, but I want us to be reminded of them again, to be challenged. Number one, prayer must be intense. The kind of prayer that moves the hand of God so often is the kind of prayer that we see here. It was intense. Now, I believe the New King James says they were praying unceasingly. Uh, the ESV and NIV and others say they, they were praying earnestly. The Greek word is ektanos, which literally was an athletic term. It meant to strive with all of one's energy. 
The very same verb was used to describe a runner moving with maximum output, taut muscles, straining and stretching to its, his or her limits, an intense strain involving a degree of intensity and perseverance. What do we see here? They pray. They didn't just passively pray. They intensely prayed. The church's response to the time of crisis was not one of passivity, but intensity. Guys, right now, the, the, the response that we must have cannot be one of passivity, but it must be one of leaning in with intensity to say, Lord, move. God, be true to your word, be true to your nature, be true to your character. God, move in our families, move in our community, move in our nation. Listen, the same word was the same word that was used of Jesus when he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane with great fervency, great intensity, that word ectonos, with great determination, intensity. In Hebrews, it says about Jesus, during the days of Jesus's life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Jesus offered up prayers and petitions. There were times in his life when there was a sweet intimacy. There was a, a conversation of back and forth with the father. There was a devotional prayer. And there's times of sweet intimacy and prayer, of simply talking and sharing, of reading the word and that still small voice of hearing God, of prayer dialogue back and forth. But the prayer that we're talking about tonight is a prayer of intercession. It's a kind of prayer at times when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, when you are crying out with loud cries, with fervency, not just an intensity emotionally, but even sometimes physically, where you're on your knees, your hands are outstretched, where you're so determined to see God move that your voice actually gets above a few decibels. <laughs> I know for some of you, you've never prayed like this. For some of you, that's all you ever pray like. You know? Some of you are like, yes, amen, it's about time. Some of you are like, I don't know if I want that. Listen, I want to challenge some of us tonight. God's calling us to different kinds and different types of prayer. And the moment that we are experiencing is calling us, I'm calling us to a different type and a different level of prayer. You see, for the early, early church, they didn't just simply accept the fate. Well, I guess we're in crisis. James is gone and shoot, Peter's next. That's not what they did. They didn't just sit back and say, well, I guess God allowed this to happen to James, and so he's going to do whatever he's going to do to Peter. No, that's not what they did. They didn't just simply say, well, I guess this is the will of God. No, they believed through prayer God would act and God would respond, and the kind of prayer that we see is intense, fervent, a, a, a wrestling. Listen, prayer at times is work. Paul would say several times, he would invite those who he wrote to, he would say, labor with me in prayer. Why would he say that? Because prayer at times is work. Prayer at times can be really difficult. There are times when I begin to pray and 30 seconds later, I am distracted. 30 seconds later, my mind's here and there. And I'm thinking, man, why can't I focus? Why can't I get into this? Other times prayer is hard because, man, you just feel and sense you're really pushing through something. The only thing easy, listen, the only thing easy about prayer is quitting. That's the only thing that's really easy about prayer is to quit and to give up far too easy and far too soon. Samuel Chadwick was a Methodist Wesleyan preacher from about a century and a half ago. And he said this, I'm gonna have two quotes from tonight. So loved what I read. He said, intensity is a law of prayer. He said, there are blessings of the kingdom that are only yielded to the violence of vehement prayer. 
He said, it's quite clear that prayer is not the easy thing that seems to be implied, you know, that we take it as. No, it's much more than that. There is a travail in it. There's a work in it. There's an entreaty in it. John Wesley, the great preacher evangelist said this, I am convinced God does nothing except an answer to prayer. Listen, church, God is calling us to a deeper level of prayer. And I ask you tonight, how is your prayer life? And I ask that knowing that on one hand, it's a very easy thing for a preacher to make you feel really guilty when you ask somebody how their, how their prayer life is. <laughs> because all of us are keenly aware, listen, this week for me, I'm preaching this to myself as much as I'm preaching this to you. Because there's things that I know, I know that the only way that things are gonna change are, is through prayer. And I'm very aware of the lack in my own life and saying, God, I, I know I am not stepping in. I know I'm not praying like I want, like I desire, like the situation requires. And I wonder in the last few months, in the last season that we've been in, what kind of prayers have you been offering? Is there a hunger in, in your soul for God to work, a desperation for a new and different and better way to live? A cry for God to show up and show himself strong on our behalf for our city, our family, our nation? Or has it simply been a time to pray and to hold on and for personal convenience and comfort? Have you been able to see beyond your own situation? Are you getting a glimpse of the spiritual war that is raging all around us? Or is prayer simply a casual, quick, one-sentence note and you move on with your life? Church, God is calling us to have a, a right vision of who he is, a vision of a God who is eager and wanting for us to pray and to ask God show up. He's not reluctant. He's not standoffish. He's not holding his arms crossed and saying, I don't know. He's saying, cry out. I want to work. I want to show up. I want to show myself strong on your behalf. God is saying, I want to do what I have promised to do. I'm waiting for you to ask and to cry out. I was reading recently again about revivals in history. I was listening to a great podcast. For those of you who like podcasts, there's one called Altars, and it's about revival, and I'd highly recommend it. It's about the history of God showing up in powerful ways and in the history of America. And one of the, the, the uh, uh, seasons, or excuse me, one of the episodes talked about the Second Great Awakening, and particularly Charles Finney. I don't know if that name rings a bell to some of you. But it was said that during his lifetime and during a, a, a short period of time, over 100,000 people were converted to Christ. And many people would look to Finney and his great preaching and, and his life of holiness, but he always gave credit to prayer. And he was always quick to point out those who would go before him and pray. And there were two people in particular that I, I had kind of heard about in the podcast talked about it. One was a guy by the name of Abel Clary, the other Father Nash, and their call was to pray. And wherever Finney was invited to preach, those two guys would go before and they would pray. They would find a room, they would find a hotel, and they would lock themselves in and they would pray. And they would intercede. And they would call down heaven to, to break the strongholds. They would call down to heaven to open blind eyes, to shake people, to wake people up. And they would pray with such intensity that the people that would rent the rooms and were like freak out, like, what are those guys doing? And they, they'd call up Finney, uh, something's the matter with the, your, your, your partners. And he's like, oh, it's okay, don't worry. They're just praying. <laughs> Finney said, I've never known a person, this is what he said, he said, I've never known a person to pray and sweat blood, but he said, quote, but I've known a person all wet with perspiration, soaked through, nosebleeds, hours of praying till their strength was absolutely exhausted until they knew they had the answer. 
Some of you are sitting there tonight going, man, Sean, that's a bit intense. You, you might want to switch to decaf or something, you know? Listen, I know it sounds intense. I, I realize that. But I, I think the situation that we're in demands intensity, right? I think we look around and we'd say, you know what's intense to me is, is a country ready to explode and it's just, it's just ready to just tear each other apart. What's intense to me is a virus that's causing all kinds of havoc and, and the response to it and the people's, you know, leaders' decisions, right or wrong. It's just, we look around and think, that's intense. We need wisdom. We need intervention. Listen, what I want to say to you tonight as we talk about intercessory prayer and a different method of prayer, may we never be guilty of moralizing a method. And what I mean by that is I love quiet, contemplative prayer. And sometimes I love loud and frothy prayer. <laughs> I love times of dialogue back and forth with God, but there's different times that require different methods from us. And sometimes some of you know what that's like in your own family personally. You, you maybe had years of just quiet devotion. You had your quiet time and you had your cup of coffee. And for some of you, you had a little sweetener to it. And it's, it's awesome. I love that you're highlighting verses. But man, sometimes it's like, there's a reason some people call it a war room, you know? There's times when it's like, you got to get on your knees and you got to pray something through. Acts chapter 12, the church knew, man, we've got to pray this thing through. Earnest, intense prayer. You see, I don't think we pray like this because we don't realize what time it is. Are we in peacetime or are we in wartime? We're in wartime. If we're in physical war, like during World War II or Vietnam War, or just the recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and your kids get called up and sent off, what are you doing? You're praying, right? Spiritually, we are in war. We are born into war. The Bible tells us in the very beginning there is a spiritual conflict that Lucifer rose up and thought he should be the one that was worshiped. And a third of the angels went along with them. And ever since that moment, they were cast out. There's a, a war that is raging. Listen, a war that we ultimately know is decided, but there's a war that is raging. It's raging for your life, for my life, for our marriages, for our families, for your kids' life. And it's a war that we must fight and must be engaged in, that we must, on our knees, at times, intensely pray, God, protect. God, give a purpose and a vision to my kid's life. God, open their eyes. May they not be deceived. God, I pray for our leaders who are so deceived. My reaction a lot of times, I'll be honest, is one of just anger and, and saying words about our governor and others that I shouldn't repeat, you know? I mean, that's humanly speaking, and God convicts me and says, are you done yet? Now start praying, because that doesn't do anything. <laughs> Listen, there's enemies out there in the spirit. They've been kicked out of heaven. What do they do? They seek to devour. They seek to destroy. They seek to attack, to attach, to deceive. And there are levels and powers and principalities and things at work. And we need to pray. Listen, I'm not a person that sees a demon behind every bush, but I heard somebody say this recently. I thought it was funny. I'm not a person who believes there's a demon behind every bush, but I think there might be one behind every other bush. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, listen, guys, things are much more spiritual than we realize. So often we only see and we only take in what Fox or CNN or whoever is saying to us. Listen, there are things at work and we need to pray. We need to have eyes to see. The enemy wants to keep us blinded and distracted and simply angry at the wrong things, at the wrong person, at the wrong situation. We don't pray because we don't realize what time it is. We need to pray. 
Even Jesus, remember it says Jesus prayed for Peter. And this always kind of freaked me out a little bit, but Jesus says, hey, Peter, Satan asked for you by name. He wanted to sift you like wheat. Satan, demons, they're asking for you. They're asking for your kids by name. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, Peter, I've prayed for you. Listen, we need to realize that. That's what's going on. That they're asking by name at times. So let's ask by name heaven to say, protect God, work, God, move, God, show up. There is an enemy who roars about like a lion, but there's a far greater lion who has real teeth and real claws and can do something about it. Guys, we win the war in the spiritual, and it is always more spiritual than we realize. John Piper said this, and I love it. Listen, prayer, prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. It is not supposing that prayer uh, malfunctions when we uh, try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. Until you know that this life is a life of war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. And I like that. Next time you pray, think about that as a walkie-talkie. We've all seen war movies. And they, they, what's a walkie-talkie? Oftentimes, the, the walkie-talkie is calling in air reinforcements. We're pinned down, sending send the bombers, sending the missiles, sending the air force, send in the air support. Holy Spirit, send in the air support. Send your angels. That's what prayer is about, church. If our prayers do not match the moment, we are in danger of being absolutely irrelevant as the people of God in this, in this country and at this time in history. And we will lament of what's to come, of what will come to pass. Listen, it's a time, yes, of personal devotion. It's a time of pressing into the word, but it's also a time of taking that personal intimacy that we have with Christ and leveraging it through intercession on behalf of others of saying, Lord, I love you. I come into your presence. God, work, God, move, God, show up like only you can do. So, you know, the kind of prayers that move the, the hand of God, first and foremost, are intense prayers. But secondly, prayer must be persistent. They continue to pray, not, not for an hour, but it says that Peter was arrested during the, the time of unleavened bread. This is about a week long, and it wasn't going to be until after Passover. So many days go by. And in fact, the angel doesn't come and show up and deliver until the very night or the eve of the trial that will, it's a sham, which will end the life of Peter. So several days go by, several days transpire and they are praying. And in fact, we read here, what were they doing and when were they doing this when Peter finally was set free? It says that it was the middle of the night when Peter knocked on the door. To me, that tells me this wasn't a quick, well, let's pray. Lord, bless Peter. <laughs> sometimes that's our prayer. And if that's all you can pray, okay, God can take that. But man, I think there's a, God sometimes like, can you be a little more specific? <laughs> can you have a little more intensity? Can you keep going? They gathered together and days. In fact, it was the middle of the night and they were still praying earnestly, it says, when Peter knocked on the door. Again, passivity it, it, it is not gonna really do much of anything. 
Jesus tells us to ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And literally the tenses in the Greek are keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. You see, we have, I believe, bad theology a lot of times when it comes to prayer. And what do I mean by that is, on the one hand, we have good theology. We believe in the sovereignty of God, that God's will and plan will be accomplished. But we take the sovereignty of God, and then we mix it with really lame prayers. We say, well, God's going to do what he's going to do, and so I I know I'm supposed to pray, and so we offer up a sentence or two prayer and just say, God, do what you're going to do. He's going to do what he wants to do. You will never find that in the Bible. There's not a single man or woman who ever prays like that. They believe in the sovereignty of God, the promises of God, the character of God, and with that, they pray. They say, yes, this is who God is. God's will will be accomplished, and I'm gonna keep praying. We've got to believe in the sovereignty of God, that God's will will be done, but that all the more should empower us, should embolden us to pray a thing through. Listen, they had just witnessed James killed, and now they decide we are not gonna stop praying. Until Peter, until something happens, until Peter's free or, or until fine. If God's will is done, then God brings him home, fine. We'll stop then. But we're not going to stop until we see it. And that's exactly what they do. They keep pushing and pushing and seeking and knocking. We see the same thing in the Old Testament, whether it's Elijah. First Kings chapter 18, after the great showdown of the prophets of Baal, he had prayed and, and, and he had called out to heaven and said, God, do not allow it to rain. And for three and a half years, it did not rain. And after that moment, it was time because God had given him a promise and the, pro- the prophet had the promise and so he prays. And he says, now it's time to pray, uh, excuse me, to bring rain. And if you know the story, he gets in the birthing position. It's really weird. But he's like basically got his hands between, his head between his knees and he starts praying and he sends his assistant, is there rain? Runs back. I don't see anything. And he comes back and says, all right, I'll keep praying. Do you see anything? Eight different rounds of this. And finally, his assistant comes back and says, I see a cloud off in the distance like the size of a fist. And Elijah says, buckle up, let's start running because a thunderstorm is coming. That's the kind of prayer that God is calling us through. It's the same kind of prayer of Daniel in Daniel chapter 10 when he read the scriptures and saw, hey, there's a promise of a prophecy from Jeremiah that went out. Our time of captivity is probably coming to an end. Does he go, great, sovereignty of God? No, he starts praying. And in Daniel chapter 10, if you know the story, he's seeking heaven, but the answer doesn't come for 21 days. Finally, the angel Michael shows up and says, from the moment that you prayed, your prayer was heard, but I've been doing battle, it says, with the prince of Persia, some kind of demonic stronghold over that area. There was a spiritual battle taking place in the heavenlies. That whole time, it says, Daniel kept praying. And I say that to some of you tonight because you've been praying. You're like, man, I have been intensely, persistently praying, but I don't see anything happening. Listen, there are things that are happening. You may not see it, but things are happening. Daniel prayed, and it says from the moment that he prayed, heaven heard, and there was an answer given. But again, it's a mystery, but there's some kind of battle taking place, and three weeks later, he finally shows up. Some of you have been praying, and you're ready to give up. I want to say to you tonight, don't quit. Don't give up. I prayed for my father for over 30 years. And there was times of intense prayer. And there were times, honestly, a very flippant prayer. Because I was like, okay, and God saved him. And it was a miracle. And I say that to some of you tonight. Do not quit. Do not give up. The church knew that. They, they kept pressing through. Listen, we don't believe in simply zap prayers. Oh, yeah, God's going to do it. Boom. Listen, he can do it instantly. But sometimes we've got to push in and press through. 
Jesus said to his disciples, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting, meaning it's going to take a little bit of effort. It's going to take a little bit of time. This kind of a stronghold is going to take some prayer and fasting for you to keep going. Third thing tonight is prayer must be unified. Listen, we're all called to get alone with God, but there's times where we're called as the body of Christ to come together. There's something happens, something happens when the spirit of God, you know, like I was talking about earlier, these embers, you know, when we get together, it gets hot. When we get together, we can hold up one another's arms in prayer. When we're praying for each other, for our families, for our situations. When we get together and the spirit of God moves and begins to intercede through us, something powerful happens. They were united. There was a corporate prayer. They were one mind, one heart, one accord. This prayer took place during, remember, unleavened bread or Passover. What were they celebrating at that time? They were celebrating the deliverance from Egypt. They were celebrating an exodus that had taken place. And they're praying once again for God to deliver, for God to be the one who can break off chains, for God to be the one who can bring the captive out of bondage and set him free. That's exactly what happens with Peter. And we want to say to us tonight, the God that they pray to is the same God tonight who wants to say, I want to set your families free. Those of you who know people who are bound in the in addictions of alcohol and drugs and pornography and all the rest, and you know it. Listen, the same God is the God who says, when you cry out to me, I can show up and do incredible things. He's a God who wants to save us as a country from racism, sexism, nationalism, consumers, all these things to break those chains off. Listen, there's no addiction that God's power cannot break. No struggle that God's power cannot enable you to overcome. No sin that the power of God cannot defeat. There's no fruit that God's power cannot produce in your life. If we would but pray and cry out and call out to God. Listen, this chapter begins with the apostle James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It ends with Herod dead, dies of worms, a pretty gross thing. You read the rest of the chapter. Peter free and the work of God triumphing. 2020 has begun and continued like chapter 12 in absolute crisis. It's begun horribly. It's continued horribly. But I don't know about you, but I have a vision that 2020 and 2021 is going to end a whole lot different. And the way it's going to happen is when the people of God will cry out and say, God work, God move, God show up. May we be a people who have a vision beyond our own little comforts and our own little conveniences and say, God move. I want 2020 to end differently. God, would you once again intervene? Would you once again send a a third great awakening on the land of America? Would you once again do it, God? I'll end with this quote from Chadwick once again. He says, as the one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from prayer. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Prayer turns ordinary mortals into men of power, women of power. It brings fire, it brings rain, it brings God. There's no power like that of prevailing prayer. Listen, human effort is not going to cut it. Human plans is not going to cut it. We need divine intervention. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. 
visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.